So on Juneteenth of last year, our incredible high school students put together a series of interviews at uh, Welcome to the Avenue on High Street. We set up a bunch of microphones and a portable recorder and had these incredible conversations with local leaders about issues that were important, um, especially important to talk about on Juneteenth. And so in honor of Black History Month, we are going to be releasing those episodes now. So without further ado, let's get into it. I, um, I, I, uh, start recording, start recording. Can I say something? Let's talk about, ooh, do I want to bring that up? There's nothing bad, but do I want to bring that up? Oh, oh, guess what? Guess hey, what? hey, 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 let's, let's sit down. Let's sit down. Let's sit down before he gets active. It's about to get active. It's about to get active. Welcome to the Created for Greatness podcast, hosted by the Strive Initiative and the Pottstown School District. Conversations from students about vision, dreams, aspirations, and thought-provoking ideas. Uh, my name is Matt Green. I'm your father. <laughs> well established. Uh, I've been living here in Pottstown for 39 of my 49 years. Um, I've worked for the borough of Pottstown. I've worked for the school district. I've been on various uh, boards and committees around town. I was on the Parks and Recreation Committee for a while. Uh, I was on the advisory board for the Ricketts Center. Um, I'm on the board of directors for the Pot Sound Cluster of Religious Communities. Just generally been involved in, oh, I'm, a, I'm a, my new role. I'm an ambassador for the Tri-County Chamber of Commerce. Oh, wow. Oh, right. Yeah. There yeah. we go. There and, we go. Uh, I'm a real estate agent. I specialize in uh, Pottstown and the surrounding areas. Matthew Green. Matthew let Green. Let change your view. Yeah, let there me change your view. That's right. If you are looking for your view to be changed, I'm your man. <laughs> there we go. All right. Oh, I also host... Porchcast porch Pottstown. Pottstown. How could I forget about I that? I don't know. <laughs> How could or, your I? Other porch cast, or your other cast? The other cast, cast the yeah, the cast at Glocker. But I think are we are we more geared towards Pottstown for this court for this uh, particular podcast for no, this conversation? No, just Juneteenth as a whole, as a whole, as a whole, uh, okay. countrywide, nationwide, worldwide. Okay. I mean, we did talk a lot about Pottstown, though. Yeah, we did. Especially, yes. like, fair funding and stuff. Um, okay, for education. Definitely. But, yeah, it's whatever you feel like, man. We got to introduce our next guest. I would love to hear it. My no co-guest? Your co-guest. Yes. Your co-star. Yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I guess you'd be the co-star to him. Right. Yeah. yeah. He was first. Well, I'm going to introduce yeah, this, my this dad, Arthur Green. There you go. There we go. Thank you very much. And as you know, you're... I'm your dad, and uh, Adam is my grandson. So, uh, I've been in Pottstown 50 plus years. Uh, I started Pottstown uh, as a teacher. I worked there at the Pottstown High School in uh, the fall of 1965. And at that point, I was the only African American teacher on that staff. And I've been in town since that time till today. Uh, I too have been very active. I've been on borough council. I have uh, had several terms with the Pottstown Area Health and Wellness Foundation. I'm currently very active with regard to that, chairing the nominating committee for that. 
Weren't you the chairman of that board at I one was point? The chairman of the uh, foundation for a period. Yes. So were you the first African American chairman of the Pottstown Area Health that, and yes. Wellness <laughs> Foundation? That's that is amazing. <laughs> That's very true. Although I didn't think of it that way. Yes. Um, <clears throat> I've been on a number of boards too. The library board. Um, I'm on the board in Boyertown at the uh, State Theater, the Historical State Theater Board. Um, I'm currently on the Pottstown Tower Health Hospital Board. And uh, <laughs> what else? <laughs> what else? Aren't you? Don't you work at the I, college? I, I do work sometimes. Yes, I do work part time at the college. <laughs> it is it is spare I, time. <laughs> I tutor uh, math and uh, chemistry, which is what I taught at the senior high school when I first came to Pottstown in 1965. I taught uh, then in '65. Chemistry and general science. So uh, it's been an interesting ride. Lived in Pottstown, although I've, we've moved twice, three times, I guess, since I first came from an apartment to our home, and then we've moved our home from Evans Street to Hanover Street, where we currently are now. So I'm uh, what would pretty you, much been busy with the Cliffs of Town. What would you consider uh, your biggest challenge in terms of? Your career, or in your case, your multiple careers that you've had? Well, in terms of my career teaching, being in the high school, in the role that I had, um, if you remember the 60s, the 60s were rather turbulent. Race issues were very prominent, pro- uh, prevalent then. And uh, it was a challenge for me to be in the high school. Uh, <clears throat> The, uh, the students there were very good students, I would say, really. Although there were issues that we were trying to deal with, and uh, I knew that I was hired to try to play some role in that situation. When I was hired, it was um, for some of the older members of the audience who might be out there. Havard Fosnacht was the outgoing superintendent, and H. Dale Winger was the incoming superintendent. And when I had my interview, both of them were across the desk from me. So that was a little um, shocking when I first came in to, to, to have an interview like that. But I think they were concerned about how I would do and um, how I could help the schools better meet some of the needs of the students who were there because they were looking for people who were going to be perhaps a little more open to a, a black point of view. And um, that, was a, that was a big challenge, although I must say, uh, I did enjoy my time there a great deal. I think the second year that I was there was perhaps my busiest and happiest year teaching in Pottstown. So what were the, like, what were the racial issues that you were dealing with? Like, do, was it... Was it like trying to segregate? Was it was it in the society? Was it amongst the students? Like where was this? Where was the friction? And and what were you kind of brought in to do? What were they hoping that one single black guy could do to address? Yeah, to address these issues. And and that that your last question is perhaps one of the largest ones. The school, the kids reflected what was happening in the community. And in the community, segregation issues were very prevalent in the news. I mean, you heard a lot of that. Busing was an issue. Um, in Pottstown, there wasn't a lot of busing because the uh, borough limits are the same limits as the school district. 
and you could walk to virtually every school if you lived in the borough. So busing really itself really wasn't an issue. But the schools were not balanced in terms of their racial makeup. Uh, you had Jefferson School. Um, that perhaps was the largest uh, black population. And at that point, too, you had a junior high school. We had two junior high schools. You had Central Junior High School and you had Northern Junior High School. And there was some imbalance there in terms of the student population. So there are some folks who felt that that should be more balanced to reflect so that all of the students are getting a similar kind of uh, opportunity, shall we say, for discussion and interaction with people coming from maybe a different point of view or different culture. But um, there were some issues, too, in terms of, of discipline. Um, some of the sports, sports issues would sometimes lead after school to conflicts with uh, uh, teams coming in or, or teams that Pottstown would play. And uh, I can recall even in my days earlier than that, that, that was a real issue because there were gangs, actual gangs when I was growing up in Westchester where I was born and raised. And they were also associated with what was happening at sports. If they didn't like the outcome of a game, then somebody would try to make an issue of that. And you had certain kinds of activities like that happening even when I was there in the yeah, school sports he's talking about high school, high school sports, sports. Yeah, high school sports yes because um, and it wasn't always coming from the students sometimes it would be coming from the parents of the students or people who were relatives of the students they didn't think a call was proper in a basketball game or if they thought a referee's decision wasn't what it should be it favored one team versus another sometimes that would act out in terms of some kind of brouhaha after the game from somebody trying to even up what should have been evened out on the on the floor for everyone to see yeah so i mean there were a lot of issues it was it was not a one um issue thing it, it was complex and i knew that i was a start when i was um teaching the black students that i knew who were planning to be teachers they wanted to go to the big cities because in the big cities were the big bucks uh, I wanted to be closer to my hometown, which is Westchester. I wasn't interested, really, in going into the big city. So that was one of the reasons why I looked at places like Pottstown to come to teach, because it wasn't really in a big city atmosphere. And at that time, big city atmospheres really presented challenge because it was inner city. It was high numbers of students in the classroom. And although Pottstown had a fairly large number of students in the classrooms at that time, it was not nearly as bad as it was in Philadelphia or New York or some of the other larger places. So I had my own reasons for staying close at home in Westchester. Part of it was because I didn't drive at that point, too. I didn't have my own car. My father, I relied on my father to get me back and forth. And I would, um, I would go home sometimes once a week, but not always. Many times I'd stay here in Pottstown to, to do what I needed to do. But uh, So who who were your, like, this is the modern word, right, allies? So who were your allies? Who were you able to call on for support when you were dealing with these issues? Again, as the only black teacher, <laughs> I think, not just at the high school, but at the school district, right? Well, like, it's, it's, it's not like you had, right. sorry to cut you off, but it's not like you had, I'm just trying to, illustrate for people what you are facing like so in the entire school district you are the first black teacher and and, and on and on top of that you're the you're you're a male teacher so in of itself you're like kind of hit with a double whammy of minority right mm -hmm. most teachers are women and most teachers are white 
on top of that, on top of that, what was what was the reaction to that? Yeah, like I want, I kind of want to. I'm interested in what the reaction was, and yeah, who you, who you leaned on uh, for support. when the reaction got bad, if it did. Uh, in the community, um, the Ricketts Center, as we currently know it, was was active, but in a in a different kind of role. Uh, I knew some of the adults who were there, some of the members of the Ricketts family and themselves, and um, in in the community. Uh, well, let me start with the staff. In the, in the staff, the teaching staff was very open. I was uh, very much a unionist when I was a student. I believed in unionism. Uh, I eventually left Pottstown High School teaching to become an, uh, a, a union representative for public school teachers. So that kind of thinking was a part of who I was and what I was all about. And um, I was very active in the union at Pottstown, um, grievance chairperson, which was involving uh, taking issues the teachers had in the school setting to help negotiate better conditions for teachers. So I had a lot of allies among the teaching staff because I was active in the union itself, the teachers union. Um, one of the persons who really was very helpful for me was uh, Mr. Ed O'Neill, who was a music teacher, uh, an outstanding music teacher. I had a lot of help too from the English staff and the science staff there. Some of the older folks might remember um, Willard Sensenig for physics, uh, Mr. Clemens in biology, uh, Mr. Giacomo also in biology. Um, so those teachers were also helpful to me when I needed some help about the school setting who was the person to contact for issues or who was the person to be aware of for uh, help or other kinds of things coming from the school uh, in that regard. And um, I did stay at a rooming house on the corner of Beach and Sheridan Streets. Uh, and I was pretty active too with the, 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 the neighborhood, the neighborhood folks who were there and the Ricketts uh, organization was just a block and a half down the street, so I would spend some time there. So I did have some contacts, even though they weren't as strong as I would have liked them to be. There were issues that would come, and just being there talking with some of the students was very helpful too, because the students were interested in forming clubs for themselves, black students' clubs, organizations, and we did some of that with the Ron Neely was one of the students, and uh, who was very active. I was a um, sponsor for the key club at one point there at the high school i was on the coaching staff at the junior high school for a period of time so i got a chance to meet the students at different grade levels in different roles and they obviously had a chance to see who i was what i was all about and i just tried to be as fair but as firm as possible because i knew i had a role as a teacher to present a certain level of discipline for all of the students regardless of who they were and that's where i did most of my work was on a one-to-one -one basis with each student who either had some issue to deal with or they had some, some some would come to me some would not always openly but some would come to me and ask me about who i was and what was i there for and what kinds of things could i offer and uh, it, it was just a a, a start uh, the, the teaching staff and the administrative staff knew that it was a start, had to start somewhere. There were other black teachers at elementary and junior high uh, level, and they were just trying to find as many folks as they could. But 
I knew that they were at a disadvantage because the salaries weren't as competitive in Pottstown as they were in Philadelphia or, or, or larger cities. And uh, some of the suburban schools who did have black staff, too, had salary s- schedules that were considerably better than Pottstown was, was offering. But uh, it was an opportunity for me to get a start, and uh, it, it fit my needs to come to Pottstown, personally. So, uh, you know the saying, sometimes the teacher is the student? Have you ever had any experience with that? Like- I've had a lot of personal learnings with regard to that, yes. Um, as I said, the students generally were good. I think they, they, they had issues, they had things, but they didn't always go about it in exactly the way I would have done it. And that's what, that's what I was trying to say to them when I would get a question. There were walkouts. You know, students would just walk out on an issue. Uh, if they felt some rule or some policy of the school district wasn't really appropriate or it impacted them in a way that didn't seem to be true or applicable to other people, they would have a walkout. And in those instances, I was in a role where I had to uphold at least the schools visibly. And I took a little heat for that. Sometimes you would hear Tom, 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 or you'd hear Cracker, or you might hear Oreo. I'd be called an Oreo because I was standing up for the white man and all of that kind of thing. But when I had a chance to speak to some of those students on an individual basis, I think they could see some of the problems of how they were handling issues and maybe think about doing things in a slightly different way. But I've learned a lot of issues on a personal level with some of the students that I interacted with while I was a teacher and particularly while on some of the teams, the sporting situations, as well as the other extracurricular activities that I was involved with because I also uh, worked down at Gruber Pool as the assistant manager of that pool. And that was another setting where the kids would see me there too. So we had a lot of discussions on the lawn there, around the pool, on all kinds of issues that students brought up in conversation. So, you know, it's, it's a long list. Uh, it's a varied list. And, um, but it always dealt with social issues. Kids getting along with kids, kids getting along with teachers. Sometimes kids would get up because some of the teachers weren't getting along with other teachers. So, I mean, it was, it was a real mixed bag. And I, I, I didn't always fit in that mix. I, I sometimes would have to bow because it wasn't appropriate for me to be, get involved. Did you feel like, did you have the concept at, in the time? Like sometimes when you're in the moment of history, you don't realize the, you don't realize how profound it's going to be. Did you have some concept that you were kind of being a trailblazer at this point in time? Did you have a concept of the impact, the historical impact that you were going to have on the community as the first black male teacher in Pottstown? Or, or did, it, did it just seem like, this is just what I have to wake up and do every day? Although I knew that uh, my presence there was an important thing. As I'm, I'm sure if the administrators didn't want me to fail, I didn't want to fail. So there was a certain pressure with regard to that, my own personal behavior. And I had some help, too, from uh, uh, Stanley Davenport, the uh, principal whose name is on the auditorium there. He was sort of like a father to me when I came in, along with Mr. O'Neill and several others, Mr. Von Drock, who was the assistant principal. Uh, in those in those days when I came, I had to have a coat and tie on. That was something that Stanley Davenport insisted of all the teachers. 
And as, as funny as it might sound now, the, the women there didn't dare come to school with a dress above the knees. So there were rules that helped me merge into the teaching staff, partly because of things that were not my decisions to make, but rules that I had to follow myself in terms of how I dressed, how I would interact with the students as I was teaching on a day-to-day basis. But the importance of it really was not something that I thought about on a regular basis. Uh, It was more, am I on target with my teaching? Am I doing the right things in the class for the students? Because I was really very much interested in interacting with students. That was probably the best part of my day. And uh, especially in labs, in the chem labs, which was a little less formal than a, a lecture class or something along those lines, to have some personal contacts with each of the students as they were performing their lab experiments. And I enjoyed that perhaps the, the, the biggest and best part of what I was doing. And the teachers who were there with me, uh, Ed Lashinsky, who was also a teacher, uh, chem- chemistry and science teacher, he was sort of a help, a big help to me as well because um, I got to know a number of perspectives and some of the history of what was going on because I didn't experience all of the things that I came to. A, you mean to the history of the school the district, the, school, the things that were going the on, the history of what happened in the, uh, with the kids, what the issue, some of the other issues were. So they taught me a lot of lessons and gave me some information too on a regular day-to-day basis about the norms sections of the town that may have been problematic or things that happened that um, you know spilled over into the schools or vice versa things that happened in the school that would spill over into the community because I wasn't here to experience all of that first thing so it, it was really very complimentary I, I had some things that I had to say and I, I like to think that I had some influence when I spoke or, or gave my opinion and I was also influenced by what other people had to say too. I mean, I had to check my own behavior and ask, am I doing the right thing? Am I at the right place? And is this the right time to take on an issue? <clears throat> so I'm sure I made some mistakes with regard to that, no question. But I think on the whole, the students accepted what I was doing, or at least the role that I had there as a teacher and someone who was a coach or someone who was there to help them in whatever way that I could. What do you think? What do you think of the stuff that you did and the changes that occurred? What do you think is the most successful change, or the most successful? What was the most impactful thing that you were a part of, or that you had some direct influence on? Uh, it's hard to say because I I don't know how I really could measure how much the needle moved because of me directly. I think one of the things that did make a big difference was when. The, there, there was a reorganization of the schools, and the student population was redistributed over a period of time. Shortly after, you know, after I was there, I can't take credit for for that, but I'm sure that the things that <clears throat> were brought out as a result of some of the activities that we were doing <clears throat> made the schools a better place. Um, some students did not have quite as far to travel as previously they did as a result of that reorganization. And uh, I think that the, the community was uh, a better place for the students to live because they were, they were not feeling, quote-unquote, discriminated against. Uh, but it's, it's really hard to say any one particular thing stood out as, as really a, a sea change, so to speak, 
where everything all of, all of at once in, in a large way took place. I think it was a gradual change over a period of time. And um, I think as more and more people began to talk, I, there were things in the community too, um, various groups. Breaking Barriers was a group that was very active when I was there. Um, that was based around people in small groups having meetings in homes on personal basis. Um, the cluster, the religious cluster of churches, which is still here, um, they had programs too along the same lines with the, that were taking place in the religious centers, the, the synagogues, the churches, the, and so on. So a, a lot of that was an outgrowth of some of the things that I was involved with directly myself. So all of those things helped, I think, move the needle for the community and brought some issues to the fore. When more um, ethnic minority police officers, like Mr. Corum was one of the first ones, Jim Corum, and others were hired, that made a difference. So there were small changes over a period of time that I think eventually changed people's attitude, changed people's mind about what was good, what was not so good, and what kinds of things really needed to be changed going forward from that point. What do you see? So, I'm sorry, I'm no, I'm like I'm hijacking the kids' perfect. interview. Perfect. <laughs> of of all those things, so here's here's one of the things that I struggle with, especially when I see the kids now compared to when I was in high school. And then, obviously, we have your perspective of, you know, the generation before me, so to speak. And I, I was really proud when I was in high school and graduated from high school. I felt like us Generation Xers, right, mm -hmm. were really one of the first generations to really start to embrace multiculturalism. And, like, for instance, I had friends that were involved in high school in, like, Amnesty International and with other organizations that were trying to break down racial and cultural barriers. And I think that, like, um, through music and, and culture, um, I felt really confident and good about the way my generation, Generation X, was kind of handling things. And we kind of inherited that from the generation before us, people that are boomers or the silent generation which you're a part of and now i'm concerned and in modern times i feel like we've taken some steps back and there's some challenges that these young people in front of us that are that we're hijacking the interview are going to have to deal with i hope that i prepared them properly you know what i mean i hope that i prepared adam and his friends properly I hope that because I know that I had some proper preparation for my one of my important mentors, my dad, my grandfather for certain. What do you think? What do you think are some of the challenges? I, I'd like to hear your perspective from an older generation, some, like as a from a trailblazer, let's say, because I, I think that's what you were. What's your perspective of the challenges that we face today? What what's lingering? What are those lingering challenges that we have with us today that we still have to do some hard work and and to 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 address and and overcome? Well, uh, let me do, let me go back just a little bit historically and and maybe add something for someone who someone out there who doesn't really know me and my family directly. When I married, 
I didn't marry a black woman. The woman of my love and life was white. And I think the fact that we were an interracial couple among the teaching staff had some impact in the community. Most of the, most of the friends that I had started with those teachers who were friends of my wife, who were my friends, accepting us as a couple and doing the things that we were doing in the community because my wife was very active in the community too. She was active in the YWCA, very much so. She taught, she was a teacher at the elementary level just as I was a teacher at the secondary level. She was a union activist. She was very active in those kinds of things. So I wasn't doing a lot of these things on my own. It was more or less the two of us and we sort of got to be known in the community in those, in those roles. And that was an issue. I, I, today, I think the fact that, in my, my recollection, the, the number of interracial couples increased significantly since I came to Pottstown in the area. And I think that's something that's more acceptable in our immediate area now. I'm, I'm concerned about whether or not that's still true. I, I think among the younger folks, it's not an issue so much. Mm-hmm. I think the younger folks are more accepting, more willing to, um, e- even if want to use the word, tolerate someone who's not the same as they, who, do, who looks different from themselves, who might speak differently or come from a different place. And to me, that's one of the lingering messages of desegregation and the racial issue that the United States has been having to deal with for, gener- for, for generations now. I think we're slipping on some of that now. The attitudes about history, what history to teach, what's the correct history to teach, where we live, how we interact with each other, whether facts matter anymore. All those things, I think, are dangerous, much more so than when I was coming up. When I think about the things that the the newer generations have to deal with on a day-to-day basis, my world was rather peaceful. I mean, for me, it was sort of tumultuous in its own way. But when I compare what I had to go through as a teenager with some of the issues and things that teenagers today have to deal with, there are so many decisions to be made, so many opportunities that can be taken, and so many distractions at the same time. I mean, it's just, it's, it's no wonder that many students are overwhelmed and too many students feel the need to think about suicide as a way to answer some of those problems. Uh, that's not the same kind of world that I grew up with. And uh, I think the adults, to a certain extent, with the technology that's been developed and the marketing that's taken place and the, uh, the pursuit of the dollar, which has always been, I mean, cap- as capitalists, Americans have always been su- supreme at that. It has just gone on steroids, and it's just... The world is too too complex for any one person to really get a good grasp of all of it and, and really know where they are. Who am I? What am I all about? Where should I be? What's the right thing to do? What's factual? What's not? Those are the, you know those are the details of those larger issues that I dealt with on a, on a different scale as a teenager than these students do today. 
I, you know, when uh, when the, when I saw the question about uh, freedom and what freedom means and all of that mm -hmm, stuff, yeah. I so my my mind immediately went to some of the issues that you just brought up. Um, the, this overwhelming propaganda that we're constantly deluged with on a daily basis, mm -hmm. and how that has ex how that has changed our perception of fact, and how that has, I would say, encouraged portions of the culture wars that we are currently involved in and what freedom means to me in this whole conversation is agency right, right. like the agency right. over yourself and your mind mm -hmm. that you can um make your own decisions you can follow your own pursuits you can even wear the clothes that you choose to wear, the eat the food that you choose to eat, use the pronouns that you want right. to, that you want to use. That that's all that's freedom, right? Like freedom is agency. Mm -hmm. And I, one of the things that concerns me, um, one of the things that I think that we really have to tackle, one of the challenges that we really have to tackle is this concept that by teaching history, by teaching certain parts of history, we are, some kind of involved in some kind of um reverse racism or something like this and that if we teach true american history that we're somehow unpatriotic or un-american or anti-white when in reality it's it's all part of it's all part of the american experience it's part of why we're here and with the way we interact yeah, right. It is a shame. And I think when I think when you hear people starting to talk about limiting um, limiting Black history or limiting certain words within the teaching of history or within the teaching of culture, that's a challenge to me. And I think that's a challenge to freedom. And I think it's a it's a challenge to our agency that we're being told by people or organizations or in, in some places the government is telling us. Um, who, what, where, when, why to study certain topics. Mm -hmm. I don't, I think we're moving away from freedom and liberty when we allow those ideas to influence uh, social policy or governmental policy, things of that nature, um, educational policy. That's, to me, that's the biggest threat, I think, right now that that hopefully the young people here at this table can take some steps to try to overcome. But it seems to me that there's a lot of unraveling going on. That and the fact, again, uh, going back, when, when I was the age of these young folks, you had maybe three or four channels on the television. Right. You didn't have a hundred channels to choose from. Three or four. And those three or four channels had literary standards that all of them met. They knew the difference between something that was true and something that wasn't. And none of them printed lies, out-and-out -out lies or propaganda. All of them were, were, were seeking the truth. They were reporting on their truth as objectively as they could. And, and that was the model for the stream of information that came across the radio, that came across the television. Everyone was being truthful to the nth degree or as truthful as they could possibly be. And today, it's just a free-for-all. I mean, freedom of speech today means you can say or do anything that you want to do, and it doesn't matter whether it's true or not. Some of these stations that you listen to or, or see, 
they just say anything and everything that comes down the pike, whether they care about it, whether they don't. And the test is whether or not me as an individual listening to that or looking at it, I have to now work hard to decide, is what I'm hearing true? Is it factual? Is it accurate? Do I have the time to process all of that information? Or am I just going to accept what's said as the truth and tough it out with whatever factual information of my own that I have? That, I think, the media, our current media, plays a large role in why we're unraveling because they, that news cycle, they have to have something to fill the air for that news cycle. Every 24 hours, they've got to have something to talk about. And I have, I have many times listened to some of those commentators just make it up because they, they had run out of things to say. And there was nothing on the, on, the, on the radio or on the grill to come forward. So they just made it up to fill the air. And that's not the way information should come to us. I agree. Information should be accurate. It should be proven. It should be provable. And you should be able to see what are the sources of this information. So that I, I'm comfortable that what you're telling me is, in fact, true and that I can believe what you're saying and instead of saying, well, it's just propaganda. They want me to do something or they want me to not do something or they want me to be someplace or say something that I shouldn't say. Uh, it, it's difficult. It's very difficult now, than, more so than when I was coming up, I would say. I think news, news on the TV when there was four channels, you know, <laughs> you, you, you know what time to turn on the news That's channel, right. and they were on there. Any time before that, they weren't, they weren't speaking yet. So yep. I was reading something. I, I couldn't really tell you where it was from. I don't remember. It was, had to be over a year ago at this point. The switch to 24-hour news yep. absolutely has increased the false information on on TV, especially on trusted news channels. Mm -hmm. Why is uh, that? Because they have to fill time. Yeah, they, have to, they have to. They have. They have to talk for 24 hours. They have to be giving information for 24 hours straight. And they they only move to a 24-hour policy because that would retain views. It would give them more money and it would give them more views. They're already on there. They're, They're already on. speaking anytime you need it. It limits the amount of time that um, those journalists can go out and investigate and get the facts. So what they do is they, uh, they broadcast the information as they're receiving it, right? Like, and as we know in real life, you don't always get the whole story at one point in time, right? So when, when those facts are just being spewed out just constantly in little bites, you never really get the whole story. And those journalists uh, uh, don't have the opportunity to go back and research what they're hearing, putting the pieces of the puzzle together. And it leaves a lot of room for interpretation. It also leaves a lot of room for manipulation. People that want to manipulate that data and manipulate that information for their own purposes, whatever that is, whether that's selling refrigerators or trying to get you to vote a certain way, can use those little pieces, those sound bites, to create a narrative that's not always necessarily accurate. It sounds accurate because you're hearing pieces of reality. You're hearing certain sound bites that are actually coming from first-person uh, sources, people that were involved in it, but they're not put together in the right order. 
They're put together in an order that is going to influence you to take a certain action or do a certain thing. Again, buy a refrigerator or go vote for somebody or go vote for some certain um, cause or some um, policy, right? Or something worse, go take a gun somewhere and do something. Yeah, I mean, right? We just saw that the the guy from the synagogue in in Pittsburgh was um, was, – convicted of the shooting right the the largest one of the largest uh shooting of jewish people in in american history right and and when you look at his case and look at who he was he was completely affected by this propaganda this anti-jewish uh propaganda that came through whatever news sources whatever history books whatever his view was was shaped by some of this misinformation and, and propaganda that he's radicalized to the point that he's going to go and get some weapons and attack a, a synagogue and kill people over uh, propaganda. How do you yeah. think that this issue could be resolved or even just like just a way to spark change in uh, the misinformation that's being spread? I think that... Um, I think that the stuff that you guys are doing now is part of it. I think it's part of the solution. And and this is the new modern way that people sit down in their living rooms or in their cars and have conversations with each other, right? This is the newest version of the conversations that my dad talked about, the Breaking Down Barriers organization that had... Uh, conversations in people's living rooms, right? You would go and meet with your neighbors and talk about what your actual um, your experiences were, what your beliefs were, and try to um, meet with other people on their beliefs and their experiences and see what truths you can distill out of that. So I think the podcast, I think the stuff that you guys are doing with multimedia is, is a part of that. And I think as much as it, as much as modern technology is responsible for clouding some of the discussion, I think it's also part of the solution. Every single person who can hear this podcast, most likely, unless you're, unless you're pop here, <laughs> has, a, has a smartphone, right? An iPhone or an Android. Did you get your phone working? Yet? He still has a flip phone. <laughs> yeah. Oh, look at oh. that. So there now, so here we go. Pop. Now even pop. Now we can include pop. <laughs> I didn't mean to discriminate to the against them, right? I, was I mean, last week you still had his flip, 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 flip phone. So it to died my, on me, unfortunately. To my point, every single person sitting at this table right now has the power of broadcast. We can go onto our iPhone or our Android. We can go on social media. We can go on. Um, we can go on Twitter. We can go on Facebook. We can go on Instagram. We can go on Snapchat, TikTok, and start broadcasting what our reality is, what our experience is. And I think that's one of the ways that we can overcome some of the negative influences and some of the propaganda that's fed to us by the um, by the corporate media let's say so i i I commend you guys um even the things that we are do with the the things that amy wolf and i do on on porchcast pottstown right like we're a local news and conversation so we local news has died out across america we we've seen the death of the local newspaper and um because we don't know 
We, we haven't been fed factual information, factual reporting about things that are going on in our neighborhoods, in our local governments. We have a tendency to over rely on this national media, which pits one side against the other. And you go into Borough Hall and now we have arguments over how we're going to fill a pothole because we feel that we have to argue with each other because of a letter after our name, DNR. Well, it, whether you're a Democrat or a Republican doesn't change the fact that that pothole has to get filled, right? Like the fact of the matter is that pothole has to get filled. Whether you're a Democrat or a Republican, that pothole is still there. But because we're so wrapped up in this corporate idea of this propaganda that we have to take sides on every single yeah. issue, right? It's just the rich people putting the poor people against each other. That's the Marxist view, right? <laughs> That's the Marxist view. <laughs> and I don't necessarily think that it's all wrong. But yeah, I mean, so I, I think the more we can get back to, to kind of finish my point, I think the more that we can get back to these smaller conversations with people that are in our neighborhood or within our community, um, the closer we can get back to what Pop here is saying and that we can decide in our communities what are the truths of in our community, what factual information, what truths exist within our community that we have to, that we have to address. And I think we can do that by having these smaller conversations. So the, I think the podcast is, is um, I'm obviously biased in my view, right? Because I host a local podcast, but I think the podcast is one way in which we can kind of combat and push back against. Yeah, at, at, at a different level, my take is our, our current government has allowed the corporations to have a free hand in virtually everything. But capitalism needs rules in order to be fair to workers and, again, to go to the Marxist point of view, to the people who are participating in that capitalist system. I think there needs to be, some, at the federal level, I'm not exactly how, sure how this could be uh, accomplished, but there need to be some penalties for not telling the truth. I think these people who, are, who, who want news after their name to be taken seriously need to be held accountable to some standard of accuracy and if they prove they broadcast something that is patently not true there needs to be a penalty somehow you know that needs to be called out and one way to call it out is to fine them or to some shut them down or in some other way you can't speak without being truthful if you're going to call yourself a news source and expect to be believed you have to be actually truthful and you have to be able to show, here's where my truth comes from. Here are the factual bases of my truth. Now, how that's going to be monitored, how that's going to be achieved, I don't know. But uh, there needs to be some way to fact check or to hold people who are purporting to be truthful in their news, in their news cycles, to be just exactly that, to be truthful, to be honest. I think there's a severe lack of... I agree with you completely, Pop. I'm not going to lie to you. Like, just going, going on, whether whatever news channel you want, CNA, CNN, Fox, NBC, whether they consider themselves nonpartisan or partisan, there's always going to be that lie or that mistruth or that maybe rewording of the truth that fits their narrative. There's always going to be that. And it's really difficult, especially with the... Um, 
fall of local news, like you were saying, mm-hmm. Dad. Right. It's hard to find a nonpartisan truth-telling network or news company in general. And coming from a you know younger person's view, not knowing what to trust, what news to trust, it's hard. It's difficult, especially when you're trying to you know think of maybe political science as more of a science rather than a feeling right uh it's difficult but with you know things like this things like porchcast pottstown i think there's a lot more truth being told however there definitely needs to be a standard mm-hmm. i think your point too about the the local newspapers again it, w- it was a slower time when I was growing up, it was a slower time. You wrote letters to people. You didn't make phone calls. You didn't text people instantaneously. And uh, a knowledgeable population read newspapers, New York Times, The Bulletin, The Inquirer. You know, all of those news organizations or magazine producers who were able to make uh, money enough to stay in business gave people factual information. So when things came the other way that weren't true, that weren't accurate, most people could sort that out themselves because they had a a source in front of them that was, in fact, here are the real facts, and you're telling me something that's different from this? Where where are you coming from? The the average person on the street picking up that newspaper on on the corner knew what the truth was because the people writing it cared about it, and they wanted to be truthful, and they felt an obligation to do just that, all the truth, all the time. I don't think so. I here's the thing. I think bias in media is really what we're kind of discussing, like what yeah. we've kind of gotten into. Right. And I I don't necessarily think that there's always a problem with bias in media, right. as long as those outlets and those commentators are honest and forthright about their biases, right? So I, I listened to a guy by the name of David Pakman, who most people would really consider. A very left-leaning person but when and and he he admits that look I'm I'm a person on the left I have a voice of a left of a leftist so therefore the my my perception of the news my my anal my analysis of the news is going to come from a left-leaning perspective right. right so that's that's much different than somebody who is hiding that or manipulating the news to, to create a certain bias right. in order to inf- negatively or positively influence, I guess, depending on what side of the issue you're on. So I don't necessarily think that the problem is with the bias in media in of itself. It's how that, wh- what are those biases, what is that activity leading to? Do you understand what I'm saying? Yes. Like they present themselves as people who speak objective facts. Right, when, but they're not. But they're not yeah. Right. So I, I've been following a news outlet called Straight Hour News, and, and the reason I like Straight Hour News is because they break down each article and show you um, where the biases are in each article, whether it's left, center, or right. So I, I would encourage a lot of people to. That's a, in my opinion, in my analysis, in your democratic opinion right i'm i'm definitely left of center right Right. i'm definitely left of center um but i believe that straight arrow news as a aggregator of news right so they're pulling news from all over the place um 
you you at least know what biases exist in articles. Go through different sources and stuff. Yeah, and then they rate they rate each article based on whether that article is left leaning, right leaning, or Mm -hmm. or center. Do they they, ever do that with other news stations? Like it's not so much news stations; it's with the stories themselves and who's reporting on those stories. So, like if you see if they have a story, let's say about I'm just going to use an example. They'll, they'll, have a, they'll have a story about the documents that were found in Joe Biden's garage, right? And then they'll, they'll break down how many of those outlets were covering that that were from the right. How many outlets were covering that story from the center? How many outlets of, were covering that story from the left? And then it gives you an idea of how that information could potentially be used um, based on its on the bias scale that they apply to it, I don't think that 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 biasy biases and news is all bad. It's just how those news sources are being honest about what their biases are, yeah, and, it, and it's a matter too of what kind of policy do they want you to follow. Right. Based on what they have to say, we all have agendas. We all have certain things we would like to see, and we not we're not all headed in the same direction at the same time. Discussions and debates are necessary in order to sort facts from fictions, and to to refine issues so that the best can be seen that will help the most people uh, as one of the goals. And uh, I think in our government, it's just too slow to react. The the, the pace of development, the pace of science today is so fast, our, our governmental ent- uh, entities aren't able to keep up with it. And the classic example for me would be this AI business. I mean, there are people out there with artificial intelligence now who, they're light years, literally light years above where our government is, who should be helping to provide some rules to govern that. And to keep us safe from falsehoods and, and distortions and all other kinds of things that won't help us in the future, and uh, we're, they're just not up to it. So I mean, it's it's uh, and uh, that we didn't have that kind of thing to worry about. I mean, there were so, issues. Yeah, so these are new these are new challenges. New challenges. Yeah, they're new challenges. They're happening at a, a rate of speed that you know just didn't happen when I was growing up and being a teenager. I mean, things. You could even on even things that were reported on television wouldn't be the instantaneous on the spot coverage. It would be several hours, maybe even a half of a day or a day later, that you would really get the full picture because the people presenting that picture wanted to give you all of the facts, all the names, all of the dates, all of they wanted to give you all of that, and it takes time to gather it all. So it's just a, a, a different emphasis on speed and information. I want to shift gears. Yeah, no, I was just about to do that. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I realized this was, that this was a high school podcast. Ah, <laughs> um, oh, dude, what the? Oh, that's oh gum. Thanks, thanks, uh, Zach. Here's the one I like. Uh, it, yeah, it, do you mind? I was, yeah, no, I was gonna. I'll ask one after, after that. Over here. I'll ask one after that. Henry's moving. Yeah. So let's take Mark's we'll, spot. We'll get a chance to get him on the mic. Maybe. I, I'm really interested in this whole okay. this whole green conversation going on here. Sometimes it's I'll, more fun I'll listening. I'll ask a question after this was presented. All right. I like. Um, I'll ask Dad. He could start pop art green. 
How do you celebrate and acknowledge your African-American heritage in your day-to-day life? How do you celebrate and acknowledge your African-American heritage in your day-to-day life? Well, these are small things, small things that might not be uh, totally visible to someone looking. But my wife likes my sides on my hair trimmed. I like the full afro. (laughs) (laughs) That's what I agree with. That's that's my statement to the world. This is me. This is all of me, my hair and everything else. Your fro. So my hair is one of the things that I that I I resist being trimmed on the side every so often. But you can see today I'm I'm trimmed a little bit back because that's the way the love of my life likes to see me, so I'll go along with that. And nice long beard. She doesn't care for that as long as it should be, from my point of view. But you know, I go along with that. Uh, my beard was definitely my beard was definitely a um, a political mm-hmm. choice. Yeah, political and cultural choice was to grow uh, hair on my face. And then food, food yeah. issues. That, those are uh, those are other things that I show. Food I, issues. I that, yeah, I mean. Certain meals, you know, the mac and cheese. And the, I like chicken. Fried chicken. Fried watermelon. Chicken, watermelon. <laughs> right? Yeah. So, I mean, those are small things. And um, just being who I am, you know, let people see me for who I am. So, I like, I, it's that last thing that you said is where I, where is, was where I take that. Mm-hmm. It's like, um, nothing I, I have I have interests, I have pursuits, I have hobbies, there's things that I like. And because I am black or or thirty-three point five percent black <laughs> according to the DNA test, um, that I'm therefore expressing my blackness because of just who I am on a day to day basis. Um, that's how I I'm proud of the fact that I'm a you know, I'm a black fisherman. I'm a black outdoorsman. Um, I'm a black. I'm a black realtor. Um, these are, you know, normal things, everyday pursuits. But I'm proud of. I'm proud of participating in those from my, the, from the perspective that I bring as a as a as a as a black person a, or a mixed race person in America. I, that's how. That's how I look at it. Uh, I think you had. I, I did. I wanted to ask this question. When Henry made this question, I was like, I have to ask Pop this question. (laughs) (laughs) When he comes on, I'm asking him this question. What historical African-American did you find the most interesting and and or impactful? You know, I I have been asked this question or variations of it a number of times. And and I have an answer that, that resonates to me. I currently teach... Um, or tutor in chemistry and math and uh, I've had to work on the math end of, but the chemistry end of it was clear and the person who most influenced me was George Washington Carver um, his experiences and his persistence to do things that he felt needed to be done in a methodical factual scientific quote unquote empirical way that impressed me. I mean, he, um, uh, you know, in his life, there are things that he did and said that were questionable, perhaps. But his approach 
his 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 need to be clear and precise that i think resonated very much with me and and my experiences in school and um i was fortunate enough to have teachers who were very much uh, uh motivating i wasn't i wasn't the best history student but i liked the chemistry classes that i took uh, i enjoyed the latin classes that i had at the time i don't speak much of that anymore but there was a time when i had a, a great deal of um, that kind of factual uh, information in my, in my uh, vocabulary but um, I, if there was one person that that would be the, the person that I would George Washington Carver to. Washington Carver yeah the creator of the peanut <laughs> <laughs> yeah right yeah I think more so he he kind of revolutionized the utilization of yes. the peanut yes. yeah. the diversity of it yeah, yeah. Peanut farmers mm-hmm. and and all the the great products. Remember, we went to see that um, exhibit of his at the Natural History Museum. Yeah, and that was good. I didn't know that, Dad. So yeah. I just I just learned something new today. I didn't either. I would have had no clue. <laughs> but when I was younger, sense. when I was younger and in college, I did a lot of reading uh, W. E. B. Du Bois. Mm-hmm. Yes. And uh, I thought I found a lot of his reading and research. You know, he was a sociologist at the University of Pennsylvania, yeah. uh, also one of the founding members of the NAACP. You know, there's another aspect of what he said, too, in terms of the, uh, the talented 10th. Yeah. Um, that's a concept, too. That's an idea that sort of resonated with me in that uh, when I was going to school in, in Westchester, there weren't many black students in the classes that I attended. My, my father, who went to ninth grade, uh, my mother did graduate from high school, but my father worked hard. He said, you're, you're going to go to school. You're going to go to college. And that was, that was a goal. He, he valued education. And that sort of falls in line with that's where the leadership hopefully will come from. That's where the, the, the educational um, mentoring and direction finding will come from. That tenth percent of the group, whatever the group consists of, who will take on some leadership role, who will exhibit some talents and hone those talents so that the group can be successful and, and develop leadership capabilities. That, that notion of things, I think, was part of, of what I was thinking, too, when I was trying to be successful in my science classes and in the math that I had to work a, hard, a little bit harder to do and some of the other things that I chose to do when I was able to make some adult decisions. I think it, I think part of that goes to to um, one of the other questions of, on that sheet, and it kind of is a good segue into what what we we're just saying is being that being that leader um, within your within your field, within your sport, um, within your pursuits. I think that's important for the young minority persons to understand is that we need leadership with within our ranks of minority the minority ranks and it's something in even in 2023 when i go out into the community because i've i've been in leadership roles and i've been involved in leadership organizations within this community for a long time 20 plus years i do not see enough brown and black faces looking back at me when I'm in those conference rooms and in those boardrooms for those meetings. We need more. 
we need more young, we need more middle-aged, black, brown, yellow, red people to step up to the plate and start taking leadership roles within their organizations, within their community, within politics. Um, if we're if we're going to be successful, if we're going to continue our success, um, that leadership is going to be needed. And personally, I don't I don't see enough of it. And I think, yeah. And I think one of the things that we can do is as a as a as a community is support support minority minority leaders, support minority leadership. And whenever possible, support minority-owned businesses. I, I think that's that yeah. that's critical to success. Putting the money back into the community, correct? Right? Um, especially in a, especially in yeah. an economy it's, like it, this. And it's the same. It's the same concept that people use with shop local, right? Yeah. We want to support local business, and I, I would just take it a step forward, a, 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 another, I just add another step to it, local right? Minority business, correct? Right. right. So we're, we're running out of time, but um, I'd like to end it on what is one thing that you would tell to the up-and-coming generation, uh, the younger generations, to either foster hope or foster a attitude of success? What would you tell the up-and-coming generations to get out there and do something? Whether it's take up politics or take up a community field, some something of that nature, what would you tell them? I'd tell I'd tell the kids. I would tell people from younger generations than mine. I'm a Generation X. Um, don't stop asking questions. Don't stop asking questions. There are, there are people right here in this community, right across the street in the building, right across the street that want you to stop asking questions because when you, when you ask those questions, they, it forces them to give an answer. It forces them to go back to their office and have to do something. And that is uncomfortable for people because it changes the status quo. It changes the way we've always done things before. And I can guarantee you the way we've always done things before is not always the right way for things to be done. We have problems in our society and our in our culture because of the way we've always done things before. And if we want that to change, you cannot stop asking questions. Why are you doing this? How are you doing this? What benefit does it have to continue to keep doing things this way when we see the problems that have been created by our past yeah. actions? So uh, that's the number one piece of advice that I would give the younger generations. Don't give up. Keep asking questions. Keep asking. Yeah. And my quick uh, add to that is um, I was a fan of Stephen Covey's, Covey's habits, seven habits of successful people. One of his first things, which I res believe is, is seek first to understand, then to be understood. And it ties in exactly with what Matt was saying. Seek first to understand what other people are saying. What, what is the other person's point of view on a particular topic or a direction or decision that's to be made? Instead of insisting that my point of view be the one that leads and takes over, seek first to understand 
and then you can seek to be understood it's once you like understand. Listen this. before you speak. Exactly. Yeah. Well. All right. Well. It's been a pleasure. That was the best one. I enjoyed yeah, that actually, that was awesome. Mostly, probably because personal bias. <laughs> <laughs> but see, you've been you've been forthright in your biases, That's and you you had a good show. It's I, yeah, all no, been factual I information. It. I I said a lot less than you, <laughs> but I had a good time nonetheless. This is um, where you go for the truth. <laughs> it went a direction I wasn't expecting, but. Hindsight, I should have expected. I entirely expected it. <laughs> I should have expected it completely. I, one thing that I'm surprised that you didn't mention that I was almost certain that you would mention. Don't start now. Almost certain that you'd mention was the the coals. I thought you were going to mention the coals. Oh, our yeah. our our trip over to Six Penny yeah. Colored Settlement. Yeah, I'm surprised you didn't. However. It's an interesting story. It is a very interesting story. You say that for the of black resilience. Yeah, and and we're still working. We're still working yeah, on uncovering information. Is Have me back, out. and we can talk <laughs> yeah, about. Yeah, no, we maybe we'll bring maybe we'll uh, our friend Doctor Carter back. Wait, Matt, did you ever invite Adam to your podcast? No, he hasn't. I invited him onto my podcast before he invited me onto his. Well, the new season of Porchcast is going to be starting back up in August, maybe. So we'll have to add well, you guys to the... We'll have to add you guys yeah, to the I, list. I didn't I'll say, be in I didn't say yeah. it. It's good timing. Right. Well, thank you for having me. Thank you for tuning in to the Creative for Greatness podcast. Check out our website at striveinitiative.com org for more information. Subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss the next episode. Tell a friend, spread the word, and be great. Clap it up! Clap it up! We out. <laughs>